How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. The flower fades and the grass withers, but the word of our God abides forever. Before we begin our study of God's word this evening, we need to make sure that we are in fellowship, ready to study his word, filled with the Holy Spirit. And so we always begin with a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to confess your sins to God in the privacy of your priesthood, utilizing 1 John 1.9. And then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this uh, privilege to study your word. It is the priority of our lives to know how you think that we may be able to have our thinking transformed by the absolute truth of your word. We pray that you would help us to understand the things that we study this evening, especially that we may have a greater understanding and appreciation for our so great salvation. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We continue our study this evening on salvation. Hebrews 2, the writer of Hebrews says, How shall we neglect so great a salvation? And there is more to salvation than what most people think. And so we embarked on a study a couple of months ago due to some heating problems in the church, due to uh, my travel schedule and a number of other factors. We are, uh, we've managed to cover uh, six lessons so far in about two months. So we're uh, gradually making process, progress, but, uh, I don't see any reason until Christmas to slow us down now. We have gone through the concept of sin as a barrier between God and man, that sin overall is a general term describing the basic problem that exists between a righteous God and fallen creatures. When Adam sinned, he disobeyed God, violated his character, violated his command, and the consequence is that sin became a barrier between God and man, and God could no longer have a relationship with fallen man. But sin is much more of a problem than just simple sin or a simple act of disobedience. And so we've broken it down into six basic components or dimensions to the sin problem. The first is sin itself. Sin in the, in the Hebrew comes from the word chata, which has to do with uh, missing the mark. It's interesting how Hebrew words... The Hebrew words all give us slightly different ideas of sin. You have kata, which means to miss the mark. You have avon, which means to uh, uh, rebel against a standard. You have the word for, uh, uh, for iniquity, which has to do with twisting a standard. Then you have the idea in the Hebrew, I mean, excuse me, in the Greek, hamartia, for coming short of that standard. So man is in... He, he violates the standard, he rebels against the standard, he twists the standard, and he misses the standard. And all of that means that he falls short of the glory of God. The second brick is the penalty of sin. And here I'm emphasizing not the uh, consequence of the penalty, or not the penalty itself, which is spiritual death. That's another dimension. But the fact of a penalty, because God is perfectly righteous and just, in his justice he must execute a penalty for sin, he can't just let sin slide. So there must be a penalty. The third brick in the barrier is the character of God, because God is perfect, perfect righteousness, and man lacks perfect righteousness. A perfect God cannot have fellowship with a fallen creature. So somehow God's perfect righteousness must be satisfied so that his justice can bless man. His righteousness and justice together must be propitiated, or there can be no solution to sin. The fourth problem is manward, and that is our lack of righteousness. We are born sinners. We are born minus R. We lack righteousness no matter how good we are. No matter how great we are, the Word of God still says that our righteousness is filthy rags. It is a filthy rags righteousness no matter how good it gets apart from God. That problem has to be solved. Fifth, we have the problem of spiritual death. We are born spiritually dead. We do not have a human spirit. We do not have a capacity to understand the things of God, to know God, to have a relationship with God. And then finally, 
our position in Adam. We are born in Adam, the Scripture says, in Adam I'll die, and that must be solved. So all of these dimensions are resolved at the cross. One reason I am breaking these down the way I am is because there are many people who come from, go to churches, come from backgrounds where you couldn't be sure that you were saved or you never knew when you were saved. And part of the reason that people think that they can do something to lose their salvation is because they think there's something they do to become saved. And furthermore, they don't really understand the dimensions of the problem. And because they have a superficial or simple view of sin, they uh, have a superficial or simple view of salvation, one that can easily be reversed if they sin again. So once you understand the profound dimensions of the sin problem, it is impossible to think that you can do anything to save yourself. And furthermore, it's impossible to think that there's anything you can do to lose the salvation once you get it. So we saw that the first problem of sin was solved by three doctrines in the Scripture, the doctrine of atonement, the doctrine of substitution, and the doctrine of unlimited atonement, the three of which all work together, that the atonement that Christ paid on the cross was a substitutionary atonement. That means he died in our place. He took our place, bore our penalty, uh, and took it upon himself. As such, his atonement is substitutionary, and it is real. Therefore, he pays the price for all sin. Second, uh, which leads to the next doctrine, paying the price for all sin, is redemption, which pays the penalty of sin. In redemption, the judicial penalty is paid, and the redemption is the price is paid for all mankind. This is symbolized by the sacrifice of the lamb without spot or blemish at the Day of Atonement in the Old Testament that is for all of Israel, though not all in Israel were actually saved. And then last time we saw that the third brick in the barrier is resolved by the doctrine of propitiation. And that is a picture of the fact that Jesus Christ's death on the cross, because he was sinless, he was impeccable because of his uh, who and what Jesus Christ is, because of his his perfect payment on the, Christ, on, on the cross, God's righteousness was satisfied, so God's justice is then free to bless fallen man. Now, one point I made last time and want to continue to stress is there is a logical relationship that I've set up between the bricks and the barrier and the solution. Starts with the sin problem, then the fact of the penalty, and then the character of God. All of those have to do with the righteousness and the justice of God. They all deal with that in one dimension or another. They deal with the payment of the of the penalty. They deal with the uh, sin. Deals with the penalty or uh, deals with the violation of God's standard. And of course, the character of God is such that He cannot have a relationship with a fallen creature. In the solution to those three bricks. And the doctrines of unlimited atonement, redemption, and propitiation, the Scripture makes it clear that this was for all mankind. It was substitutionary. Actually, the doctrine of substitution applies to all three of these doctrines, propitiation, redemption, and atonement. It is, as I said, a real substitution. And by that I mean it is not, as so often expressed in unlimited atonement, a hypothetical Atonement, Hypothetical meaning that Christ paid the penalty and it's yours if you accept it. No, Christ paid the penalty whether you accept it or not, but that's not enough to get you saved. And what we see in these three, three first bricks is the fact that God is satisfied by Christ's death on the cross in relationship to all men, 1 John 2.2. 2. That the redemption price is actually paid for all mankind, for every human being, and that the atonement is for all mankind. But when we get to the next three bricks, these have to do with the application to the individual, so that the sin problem is completely resolved by the solution to the first three bricks, and sin is no longer an issue for the unbeliever. You don't need to sit down when you're witnessing to someone and convince them that they're a sinner. You don't need to browbeat them, get them guilty, uh, used to, sometimes you'll hear people say, well, you can't get people saved until you get them lost. And then, uh, 
Uh, and so you spend in all your time browbeating them, making them guilty for all the things they did that was wrong. We'll see part of why that approach and technique is not uh, the most uh, uh, biblically consistent technique around. And, and it's because, and part of the reason is because sin is solved at the cross. Sin is no longer an issue. The issue is faith alone and Christ alone. John 3.18 says that they're condemned because they don't believe, not because of their sin. The sin problem is paid for at the cross. But see, even though the sin problem is paid for, the penalty is paid, atonement's accomplished, the character of God is satisfied, you still have three problems. And that has to do with what is true about the individual. He still lacks the kind of righteousness necessary to get into heaven. He is still spiritually dead, and he's still in Adam. These three things are only solved when he puts his faith alone in Christ alone. So last time we covered propitiation, and then we came to the next problem, which is our lack of righteousness. This is a legal problem. It is not simply a moral problem. It is not simply the fact that people are, uh, are morally corrupt. Too often you find that when we think of a lack of righteousness and define it in terms of morality, people become confused because you can look around and you can see a number of people who are very religious and very moral, but they're not any more saved than uh, somebody who is extremely immoral and, uh, and obviously lost. The solution to that problem comes under two doctrines, the doctrine of imputation and justification. The doctrine of imputation and justification, and I began this last time we met, but that was two weeks ago, so I'm going to start over and just briefly review the first six points which I covered last time, and I have a total of 11 points in this doctrine which will get covered uh, this evening. So the doctrine of imputation and justification. One of the problems we have to understand in today's world is that terms like imputation and justification are somewhat anachronistic. They are not used in everyday language, everyday vocabulary. You're not going to find them on something like South Park or, or um, some other show that teenagers watch today. And so they're not going to uh, be able to understand terms like that. So you have to be able to communicate them because God has chosen to communicate his word in, in the Koine vocabulary. But one of the problems that Satan, or one of the techniques that Satan has for destroying the effectiveness of witnessing is to destroy vocabulary and just sit down and try to have a conversation with a, with many 15 or 16 year olds today and you'll see that Satan has become extremely effective in destroying the uh, vocabulary of many adolescents. And it doesn't get any better. You know, you sit down and you talk to some 20 year olds or 30 year olds and you wonder where, where their education was. So the problem we have to deal with today is taking this terminology and communicating it clearly to people and trying to find some analogies that, that make these things clear. So let's just break the doctrine down, and we'll start with a definition. Definition for imputation. Imputation is the action of the justice of God, whereby either condemnation or blessing is assigned, credited, or attributed to a human being. Those three words are the key words you need to hone in on in explaining imputation. Assigned, credited, or attributed to a human being. There are two categories of imputations. Real imputations and judicial imputations. Real imputations and judicial imputations. Let me give that to you one more time. The action of the justice of God, whereby either condemnation or blessing is assigned, credited, or attributed to a human being. And there are two categories, real and judicial. Let me break this down. I have a pen up here. We need, Jim, we need to get some more pens. I left one on, on left the top off the other morning. It's a dead soldier. Not right now. I think this, I think this one will work. God is, well, it's a little dull. 
God is perfect righteousness and absolute justice. His righteousness is the standard of his character. And it is a perfect standard, an absolute standard. Can you read that okay? Justice is the application, and it's a perfect application of that standard to his creatures. When man falls short of the standard, then the justice of God has to condemn. When man meets the standard of of God's justice, then the justice of God can bless. So condemnation and blessing both come from the justice of God. And before God can, can bless man, man must first meet the standard of God's righteousness. This is the problem at with, with the fallen human being is that we are born minus R. We do not meet the standard of God judicially. We are under condemnation and under a penalty. It is not just because we are immoral, because there are many sins that have nothing to do with morality. But because we fall short of God's perfect standard, God can only judge or condemn us. Something must happen before God can bless us. Now, to understand further the definition, we have to understand the concept that I mentioned of real imputations and judicial imputations. Real imputations credit something to a person which truly belongs to that person. Thus, an affinity exists between what is received and the one receiving it. There is an affinity or a likeness or a point of compatibility between what is being imputed and what and that to which it is being imputed. Real imputations include, first of all, Adam's original sin to the sin nature at birth. As we'll see, we'll, we'll get into a greater discussion of Adam's original sin in a minute, but Adam's original sin is his decision to disobey God and to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That sin is a personal sin for Adam. It's also an original sin. It's the first sin in human history, and that is the sin that determined the fall of mankind. It is that sin that is uh, imputed to the sin nature of every individual at birth. The second real imputation is eternal life to the human spirit. Notice there's an affinity between human life and the new human spirit that is uh, given to the individual believer at the instant of regeneration. 1 John 5:11 and 12. Third real imputation is blessings in time to the righteousness of God in us. God blesses us because of not because of what we do, but because we possess the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. He doesn't bless you because you read your Bible. He doesn't bless you because you pray. He doesn't bless you because you witness. He blesses you because you possess the perfect righteousness of, of God. You witness, you pray, you read your Bible, you carry out, you give to the church, you witness, all as part of your priesthood. And as the believer functions in his priesthood, it's a consequence of his spiritual growth. As you grow spiritually, you develop capacity for life. Because of that capacity for life, God then distributes blessings he has already in his grace assigned to you. So blessings in time are given to the righteousness of God in us. And fourth, blessings in eternity will be imputed to the resurrected believer. Blessings in eternity will be uh, imputed to the resurrected believer. These are called rewards at the judgment seat of Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.10. Point number three, there are two judicial imputations. First of all, a judicial imputation occurs when the justice of God assigns or credits to a person what is not antecedently his own. Now, that means that he assigns something to that person where there um, is not a necessary affinity or agreement between what is being imputed and what is received. In this first example, our personal sins to Christ on the cross, Christ is perfect righteousness. Our personal sins are, of course, an affront to his righteousness, so there's no affinity there. It is a a judicial assignment. The second judicial imputation is Christ's perfect righteousness to the believer at the point of salvation, Romans 4, 3 through 4, 
and 2 Corinthians 5.21. Christ's perfect righteousness to the believer at the point of salvation. Now, these are the there are three imputations we're going to focus on in this study related to salvation. And they are these two, our personal sins to Christ on the cross, Christ's perfect righteousness to the believer at the point of salvation, and one real imputation, and that is the first one, Adam's original sin to the sin nature at birth. Now that gives us an overview of the doctrine. Point number four, let's back up and break the definition down just a little more. Imputation derives from the Latin word imputare. One of the greatest things that you can do or you can have your children do is to take some classes in high school in Latin if they can. That will do wonders for their scores on their college entrance exams because so much of English is based in in Latin, and if you can learn some Latin vocabulary, it's going to help you work your way through a lot of vocabulary. If you don't know the English word, you can often break it down, and if you know a little Latin, you can figure out what that word means. Imputare is the the Latin verb for, uh, for imputation, and it means... It means to reckon, to charge to one's account. The English word imputation means to charge someone with a fault or a responsibility or to credit some action to someone. The English usually means to charge someone with a fault or responsibility or simply to credit something to someone. However, the Greek word, which is logizomai, the Greek word logizomai, L-O-G, I-Z-O-M-A-I was an accounting term. It primarily has a financial concept, and it had the idea of crediting something to someone's account financially, and it's used in the courtroom in terms of a legal or a forensic concept. As such, it doesn't refer to giving a concrete substance to someone, but to credit or assign responsibility for something to someone in a legal sense. Thus, you wouldn't use imputation to describe giving a gift or something like a, a concrete object to someone. That's why I don't, I don't like using the word imputation to describe the imputation of the soul to the body because the soul is a substance, and, um, and that doesn't fit the main idea of imputation, which is assigning something or accrediting something to someone for in terms of legal responsibility or accountability. If we break this idea down a little more, we can say that the judicial concept, and this is so important to understand, the Bible from beginning to end is fit on the concept of justice. If you don't understand justice, you can't understand the Bible. If you don't have a grasp of the legal system, you can't understand God's relationship to man. If you think about it, the very almost the very first action that takes place in the Bible is a judicial action. God condemns man in Genesis chapter 3. Almost the very last action that takes place in the Bible in Revelation chapter 20 is the great white throne judgment, which is the function of the Supreme Court of Heaven assigning every unbeliever to the lake of fire. And everything in in between fits this model of justice. We talk about Satan as the enemy of God, and the Hebrew word shatan comes from a Hebrew word meaning the accuser. It is a legal term for a, uh, an accuser in a courtroom setting. Jesus Christ is called our advocate. That's, again, another legal term. When we sin, we confess our sins, and confession is a legal concept. It's not a concept of guilt or emotion or remorse. It is set in 1 John 1 and 2 in a legal context. So to understand the Bible and man's relationship to to God, we must first understand that it is this judicial point of contact with God that is foundational, and God's justice must must be satisfied. So all of this interconnects, and, is, and the judicial concept is uh, central to understanding our salvation.
So the judicial concept of imputation means to attribute something to a person as the judicial or meritorious reason for blessing or condemnation, reward or punishment. This is important to understand. It, it, it means to attribute something to a person as the judicial or the meritorious reason for blessing or condemnation, reward or punishment. Second, to impute sin means to credit or assign the guilt of sin. This does not mean that a person is inherently a criminal or that they're morally guilty. A brand new baby is not morally guilty. They're not a criminal. They are not immoral, but they are under a judicial penalty. They have been declared guilty by the Supreme Court of Heaven because of their relationship to Adam and because of Adam's original sin. So imputation does not mean to be criminal, to be morally uh, guilty, uh, to be immoral, but it emphasizes a judicial obligation to satisfy justice, that there is a failure to satisfy justice, and therefore the person is, is um, guilty. It is a legal guilt. It is not a psychological guilt or a moral guilt, but a legal guilt. Now, the word imputation, point number five, is used in a secular sense in the New Testament at one passage in Philemon 18. Now, remember, Philemon only has one chapter, so when I say Philemon 18, don't start digging for the 18th chapter of Philemon. Philemon 18, Paul is writing to Philemon, who is a wealthy landowner and slave owner who has had a slave escape, and Paul ran into this slave in Rome. His name was Onesimus. And Onesimus became a believer and served with Paul, and Paul sends him back to his owner, Philemon, and gives Philemon instructions on how to properly treat Onesimus, because Philemon is also a believer, and therefore new rules apply in the master-slave relationship. Just by way of note, the new rules did not negate slavery, but it did change the nature of slavery so that it was to operate on a grace basis. And in this passage... Paul states, but if he, that is Onesimus, has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account, impute that to my account, credit that to my account. In other words, it's that financial terminology that is used of credit that over to my account. It's a similar financial concept to going in and getting a, a loan and perhaps uh, uh, with a young person that hasn't established credit yet, when they get that first loan, their mother or their father uh, cosigns for them so that they're really getting the loan on the basis of someone else's credit, but it allows them then to start to build their own credit. And that's the idea that our credit isn't based on who and what we are, but on what Jesus Christ has in his bank account, as it were, by analogy. Okay, let's start looking at these imputations because we have three to examine to, that are the foundation for understanding everything in salvation. The first imputation is a real imputation. That means that the sin, that, the, that which is assigned, has affinity with that to which it is assigned. The first real imputation is Adam's original sin, and it is imputed to the sin nature of every human being at birth. Now, historically, I want to give you a little understanding of the history of this. There have been four different views related to imputation or how Adam's original sin affects the human race. So we'll start off by looking at uh, a sub-point A, the theological solution. And the first person to try to come up with a solution in history was a British monk by the name of Pelagius. And he taught around 409 B.C. in Rome and Pelagius used the word imitation instead of imputation. For Pelagius, every person was born in the same innocent, untainted, and neutral uh, state that Adam was originally created, so that each individual is born in such a way that they are untainted by Adam's original sin. They are not guilty of Adam's sin, but eventually they may imitate Adam's sin on their own, at which time they become guilty of sin. Thus, men are not born sinners. 
They're not born under condemnation, and spiritual and, and that death is not the result of sin. Now, Pelagianism is the forerunner of Arminianism. During after the Reformation, there was a great debate between Calvin Calvinists, the followers of John Calvin, and the followers of a man named Jacobus Arminius. We'll get to them in just a minute. Pelagianism is really the forerunner of that, and it was condemned as heresy at the Council of Carthage in 418. Uh, many liberal Protestants follow a have really a Pelagian view of man, that man is basically good. If you run into anybody who thinks that man is basically good, then they're buying their, their heirs of the Pelagian doctrine. Scripture teaches just the opposite. Modern Unitarians, probably historically the uh, modern, the uh, Congregationalists, since they went liberal in the 19th century, most liberal Methodists, etc., all hold to a pretty close to a Pelagian view of the nature of man. A man who was similar to him is a man named Jacobus Arminius. I mentioned just a few moments ago who lived from 1559 uh, to 1609. Now, actually, uh, he gets blamed for a lot more than he actually taught. He was a Dutch theologian. Uh, he was probably not, in terms of what he taught, he was probably not much, not too far from what we believe, but his followers took him a lot further. So that for Arminians... Man is not guilty because of Adam's sin. Each individual voluntarily and purposefully chooses to sin. Only then does God impute sin to them. So, see, uh, you have uh, Pelagius who has just an imitation, but with Arminius there is an imputation to everyone, but they're not really dead. They're just sort of sick. See, man's not born dead. He still has some ability. He's just, he's just ill. Now, in contrast to Arminius, you have the Calvinist position, which was really not originated by Jean Calvin, as it's written in the French. But uh, one of his one of his uh, followers in the next in the um, 17th century, Johannes Cotius, and he developed the terminology federal headship, federal headship, that Adam was the federal head or the representative head of the entire human race. And if you want to know where we got our idea of a, using terminology like a federal government, federal representation, guess what? It comes out of theology, folks, because so many people in the early years of, in the colonies were, uh, were Calvinists, and were the, the Puritans and the Pilgrims were all heavily influenced by a Puritan theology and the idea that a representative uh, goes, you, you elect a representative who makes decisions on your behalf. And that's the idea of federal headship, that Adam was the designated representative of the human race, so whatever decision he made was imputed then to everyone in the human race. So we've gone from Pelagius in the 4th century up to his follower Arminius. Now we're backing off on the truth to the uh, put together two two ideas on the orthodox side, Calvin's you know, or the Calvinist idea of federal head, headship, and then the idea that came from Augustine back in the fourth century again, uh, called seminalism. And Augustine was Pelagian's, Pelagius's opponent, as Calvinists were the opponent to the Arminians. So seminalism was. Uh, Augustine's attempt to explain man's relationship to Adam's sin. And this was based on the verse in Hebrews 7, verses 9 through 10, where we are told that Levi paid tithes to Abraham while he was still in Abraham's loins. Now remember, Abraham lived about 2000 B.C. Abraham had a son, Isaac. Isaac had a son, Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons, among whom was Levi. So Levi's not alive for about 150 to 200 years after Abraham, yet it was Abraham who paid tithes to Melchizedek, and yet the Scripture says Levi did it through his father, even though he wasn't even born yet. So that shows this seminal relationship, seminal coming from the word seed, that even though he is not born yet, he is still seminally in his father uh, Abraham. So Augustine saw a biological or physical connection, whereas the Calvinist 
development later on saw a representative connection. Now, actually, by way of conclusion here, both of these are right. See, what, as I mentioned the last time, what often happens in theology is you set up uh, two positions that have a lot of truth in them, and sometimes you need to come along and say, well, they're both true, let's put them together. And in one sense, Adam is our representative. When he sinned, he was the representative of the entire human human race. However, something happened physically, biologically, genetically at that time, and that is what we call the sin nature. So that the sin nature itself is passed on genetically, physically, and Adam's original sin, which is the legal dimension, is then imputed to the biological home, the sin nature, at the instant of birth. So that the sin nature is passed down through the male, from father to to children, down through the generations, and at each birth, the legal aspect of Adam's fall is then assigned or credited legally to that sin nature. Now let's look at the mechanics of that, because people often have problems with the whole idea of federal headship. How can God hold me accountable for a decision that Adam made? I mean, let's face it, folks. I wouldn't have made that decision, right? Except God in his foreknowledge and omniscience knew that if each of us sooner or later would end up making the same decision that Adam made. But Adam is the designated head, and just as your designated representative, who just got reelected, goes off to Congress and makes decisions, whether you agree with them or not, you're still accountable to those decisions. And that's how the system works. But this is also the genius of God's plan. By the imputation of Adam's original sin to the entire human race, and by the genetic connection of the entire human race, God is able to provide one act of salvation that can save everyone in the human race. If it's individual, then it breaks down. For example, among the angels, each angel was created separately. There's no biological connection between the angels. There's no genetic connection between the angels. Each angel is a unique individual creation. You don't have mother and father angels that get together and have sex and produce baby angels. If you did, then they would represent a species. But each angel is one of a kind. As such, when the in the angelic realm, when sin occurred, there was no Salvation. The issue for them was whether or not they would choose to follow Satan in his rebellion. Once that decision was made, there's no provision of salvation. In the human race, because we are all biologically related to Adam, because there is that genetic connection for the sin nature, then God can provide a, a salvation solution through Jesus Christ so that just as one man's sin is imputed to every member of the human race, one man's righteousness can be imputed to every member of the human race. And so it is the genius of God's plan of salvation to, to condemn the entire human race through one man's sin because in that, in that um, uh, plan there can be a solution that can save every member of the human race. So when Adam sinned, the realm of nature, including the human body, immediately became corrupted and transformed, and we've gone through a study of that in Genesis chapter 3. Now, one aspect of that corruption in man is called the sin nature, and the sin nature resides in the cell structure of the human body and is somehow uh, somehow is passed on through the DNA and the genetic structure of man. This, this material dimension of the sin nature is, is evident through certain terms that are used to describe it. For example, in Romans 7, 7 to 18, and Romans 8, 3 through 5, it's called the flesh. It's also called the flesh in Galatians 3, 3 and Galatians uh, 5, 16. In Romans 6, 6, it's called the body of sin, this body of sin, talking about the physical body. Furthermore, Paul uses the phrase, the sin that reigns in your mortal body, in Romans 6.12. So that indicates that the sin nature has a genetic home. That is where it resides and how it is passed down from one generation to the next. So the sin nature then can be said to be genetically formed and transmitted physically. 
Now remember, that just affects the physical body, the material body, not the immaterial soul. The immaterial soul is created by God. God is perfect and can only create perfection. Now this was where Pelagius fell apart. He said, God is perfect. He creates the soul. So if God is going to create the soul, then it must be perfect. So how can you say that each soul is is flawed and becomes a sinner? Because God can't create that soul a sinner. Well, God, at the point of birth, simultaneously God creates and imparts the soul to the individual. As soon as that soul is embodied in the physical body, it is corrupted by the sin nature in the physical body. So God is not the author of sin. He doesn't create a corrupt soul, but he he puts that soul in a body that becomes corrupt because it is in uh, a body with a with a sin nature, and it is corrupted when it comes under the influence of that sin nature. When Adam sinned, this contamination and corruption occurred at the instant of his sin, and for us it occurs at the instant of physical birth. Remember the creation of the soul, its impartation to the human body at birth, and the imputation of Adam's original sin occurs simultaneously. So God, at the instant of birth, God creates and imparts the soul, he imputes to the sin nature that it has been passed on genetically through the physical body the legal uh, responsibility for Adam's original sin. And so each individual soul is fully corrupted because of its home in a human body. The result is that we are born physically alive but spiritually dead, Ephesians 2, 1. Now let's look at a couple of passages. Key passages, Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. Therefore, Paul says, Just as through one man sin entered into the world. The one man is Adam. And sin here and it talks about sin nature. The term sin in the singular can refer to either the uh, either Adam's original sin It can refer to the sin nature, or it can refer to the principle of personal sin. So whenever you see the word sin in the singular, it can be one of those three things, either the sin nature, Adam's original sin, or the principle of personal sin. Therefore, Paul says, just as through one man, that is Adam, sin entered into the world, and death through sin. Now, the death that is spoken of here in Romans 5 is spiritual death. You have a similar passage in 1 Corinthians 15, but there when it talks about in Adam all die, it's talking about physical death. The reason is the context. In 1 Corinthians 15, it's talking about resurrection. It's not a physical bodily resurrection. Therefore, when you're talking about death in the context of physical bodily resurrection, you can't be talking about spiritual death. Here, though, you're talking about that which is the penalty of sin, which is spiritual death. Physical death is a consequence of the penalty of sin, which is spiritual death. Through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. Notice the terminology, all. Death went to all men without exception because all sinned. Now what about Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ is born sinless and without a sin nature because of the virgin birth. Because Adam is the designated head of the race, and it's Adam's decision that determines the fall of the human race, it is through the male that the sin nature is passed on through the process of of procreation. Now, I'm not going to go through the details of that uh, this evening. We've studied that before. But what happens is that, um, that the sin nature is simply passed on through the male of the species. So by the virgin birth... No male is involved in the birth of Jesus Christ, therefore he is born sinless. Now, most evangelicals just think the virgin birth was important to show that Jesus was was born miraculously, and that that therefore he he is fully God. But it goes deeper than that, and I find it sad that too many people are just unwilling to think very deeply about any of these things. So, uh, sin inter- spreads to all men because all sinned. Then, in verse 13, Paul says, For until the law, sin was in the world. But sin is not imputed when there is no law. Now, what in the world does that mean? 
Well, if you look later on in Romans, when Paul deals with some problems among the Jews in Romans chapter 10, it's obvious that that there were many Jews, and just as there are many Christians today who are self-righteous, who think that somehow sin is defined by the Mosaic law. So what Paul is going to do in Romans 5 is go to that period before the law between Adam and and, uh, Moses, that time that covered the dispensation of the Gentiles and the early period of, the, of Israel under the age of the patriarchs. And he's going to go to that period before the Mosaic Law existed to show that there was, pers- there was sin and men were condemned even without the Mosaic Law. The purpose of the Mosaic Law is not to define sin. The Mosaic Law defines the law code for Israel, but the sin that is evident in the Mosaic Law was still sin for centuries before the Mosaic Law ever came along. The law's purpose was threefold. First of all, it was to reveal man's condemnation. It was to show that man could not keep the law and therefore he was under condemnation. The second purpose for the Mosaic Law was to reveal man's inability to fulfill God's perfect standard. Now these are three purposes for the soteriological aspect of the law. Its primary function was to serve as the civil and ceremonial law code for the nation. But in terms of its soteriological application, there are these three purposes. First, to reveal that man is condemned. Second, to reveal man's inability to fulfill God's perfect standard, that no one can fulfill the law perfectly. And third, to show or to reveal that human righteousness is no basis for blessing that man is not blessed because of what he does. Now, what Paul is doing in Romans 5.13 is to show that personal sin is not, the, is, is not the basis for condemnation. He says, for until the law, personal sin was in the world, but personal sin is not imputed when there is no law. See, we have to decide here what kind of sin this is in Romans 5.13, and by a process of elimination in the context, and because of what is stated later on in verse 16, we know that he is talking about personal sin here. For until the law, personal sin was in the world. See, the Mosaic law revealed what personal sin was. Later on, the Jews are going to say, well, you know, I I haven't violated the law, so I'm not a sinner. So he's clearly talking about personal sin. Personal sin was in the world, but personal sin is not imputed when there is uh, no law. Paul is making it clear that condemnation is not based on personal sin. And this is a clear statement from both the Old and New Testament. For example, in 2 Corinthians 5.19, Paul states, that is, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. See, their trespasses are not imputed to us. They're imputed to Christ. And he pays the penalty for those sins on the cross. Psalm 32.2 at the beginning states, Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. Again, in Romans 4.8, this is quoted, Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. So personal sins are not imputed to us. Personal sins are not the basis for our condemnation. Personal sins are, let me say that again, personal sins are not the basis for your condemnation. You're condemned because of Adam's original sin. At the instant of physical birth, you have inherited genetically a sin nature to which God imputes Adam's original sin, and you are declared guilty at that point, not because of what you do, but because of your relationship to Adam. Conclusion, we are born sinners, and we are sinners. We sin because we are sinners. We are not sinners because we sin. Let me say that again. You're a You sin because you're a sinner. Every person sins because they are born a sinner. You are not a sinner because you sin. You are born that way. You are born physically dead and spiritual, uh, I mean physically alive and spiritually dead. Now Romans 5.14, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even though there wasn't any law. And even though personal sins aren't imputed, death reigns. Why? Because of the imputation of Adam's original sin. Even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam. You see, 
Our personal sins are not the issue. It is Adam's original sin, and Adam is a type of him who was to come. That is a type of Jesus Christ who is called the second Adam because only two uh, human beings were ever, ever began totally sinless without a sin nature. Adam was created that way. Jesus Christ, because of the virgin birth, was born that way. Adam failed. Jesus Christ passes all of the tests. Therefore, he's qualified to provide the solution to Adam's sin. Then we come to Romans 5.15. But the free gift, that is the free gift of, the, of, of Jesus Christ and his salvation work on the cross, is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one, that is Adam's original sin, the many died, that is the entire human race, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, that is the gift of salvation by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. So you have a, a statement here that just as transgression of the one was imputed to the many and they all died, even more because it involves the grace of God and the love of God, the gift of salvation from the one man, Jesus Christ, abounds to the many. Now it is therefore, this, we, just in conclusion, the sin of Adam that is the basis for our condemnation, and it is the work of Christ then that is the basis for our salvation. If our personal sins are not the basis for our condemnation, then personal good or righteousness can't be the basis for our salvation. Let me say that again. If personal sins are not the basis for your condemnation, then personal good deeds or works can't be the basis for your salvation. It is Adam's original sin that is the basis for the condemnation. It is the basis for all your personal sins. Jesus Christ paid the penalty for Adam's original sin and personal sins on the cross so that those sins are no longer the issue. Romans 5.16, The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation, and that's condemnation to all. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions, that is, all the personal sins which were paid for by Christ on the cross, resulting in justification. Thus, since our personal sins are imputed to Christ, they are not the basis for judgment. So that brings us then to point number seven. The first judicial imputation then is the imputation of our personal sins to Christ. Everything that I've covered so far was point six. The first real imputation, Adam's original sin to the sin nature at birth. Now we look at the second dimension of imputation, the first judicial imputation, which is the imputation of our personal sins to Jesus Christ. When God pronounces each person guilty of Adam's original sin, this doesn't mean that the descendants of Adam committed the sin. It doesn't mean they're morally responsible for Adam's sin. And it doesn't mean that, uh, but it does mean that his sin is the legal ground of condemnation for all who are related to him. It's a legal concept, not an experiential concept. It doesn't mean that you're actually guilty, that you did Adam's sin, or that you're morally guilty, but that it is the legal ground of condemnation. Therefore, man doesn't meet the standard. That's the, that's the basic concept. We're born in the image of Adam after the fall. We share his original sin by real imputation and his sin nature by genetic uh, transmission. Thus we share his spiritual death, his sin is our sin, his sin nature, our sin nature, and his condemnation, our condemnation. This is the point of Romans 5.14. Furthermore, since Christ is the image of Adam before the fall, he and he maintains his impeccability throughout the period of the Incarnation, he is qualified to pay the penalty for our sins on the cross. And at the cross, God the Father in his justice imputes or credits all of our sins to Christ on the cross. This is the point of Romans 5.15. The free gift is not like the transgression. If by the transgression of the one the many died, much more did the grace of God 
and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. Our sins are imputed to him. Now, that doesn't mean that Christ actually committed our sins. Remember, he's still perfect righteousness. It doesn't mean that he is morally accountable for our sins. It does, it, it, and it doesn't mean that the responsibility for our sins fell on him. All that is meant is that he, he assumed our place legally and paid the penalty for our sins and assumed the payment for our legal guilt. Jesus Christ answered the demands of divine justice on our behalf so that God's justice is satisfied. All of that has to do with the first judicial imputation. When our sins are imputed to Christ, he pays the penalty, satisfies God's judicial demand. The second judicial imputation is that of Christ's divine righteousness to man. Christ's divine righteousness to man. And this was a point of Romans 5.16 that the gift is such that his perfect righteousness is imputed to us. Now, once again, this does not mean that at salvation, at justification, that man becomes moral or righteous or that our nature is changed so that it is as if we had never sinned or as if we did the acts of Christ in obeying the law or that his merit is our merit. It means positively that his righteousness is simply assigned to us. It's credited to our account so that God is then able to bless the believer. Remember, when we talk, use words like righteousness and unrighteousness, we have two senses. First sense is a moral sense. We say someone's righteous. That means they're, we use that to mean they're moral or they're unrighteous. They're, they're not a moral person. But the second meaning is the word, the concept that is emphasized in Scripture, and that is the relationship of a person to justice. The root word for righteousness is dikaiao, meaning justice or righteousness. A person that is not righteous is adikao. He is unrighteous. He does not meet the legal standard. It doesn't have to do with how moral or immoral he is, but he doesn't meet God's perfect standard. Therefore, in salvation, in the imputation of God's perfect righteousness to us, the believer meets God's righteous standard by virtue of not his own righteousness, but the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Therefore, at imputation of righteousness at salvation, point number nine, the result is that man is declared righteous. It is a legal declaration from the Supreme Court of Heaven. He is not made righteous. His sin is not merely overlooked. It is not just as if I had never sinned. It is a totally different concept. Man is declared to be righteous, not because of what he is, but because he possesses the perfect righteousness of Christ. Let me skip ahead. Here is a perfect picture of what happens. God is perfectly righteousness, perfect righteousness and justice. When man, Adam sinned, and when man, fallen man is born, we lack righteousness. Isaiah 64, 6 says that all of us have become like one who is unclean. All our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. At the cross, our sins were poured out on Jesus Christ. They were assigned to him. He's not guilty of them, but they are assigned to him so that he pays the legal penalty. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. When we put our faith alone in Christ alone, God then creates this new creature this new life, this new human spirit, and simultaneously imputes to it the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. So that when the righteousness of Christ, uh, I mean, the righteousness of God looks at us, he declares us righteous, not because of what we've done, but because of what Jesus Christ is. As a result, the justice of God is free to bless us, not because of our good deeds or lack of good deeds, not because of our prayer or Bible study or anything, but because we possess the perfect righteousness of Christ. That's what imputation and justification mean. That's how the problem of our lack of righteousness is solved. Now we'll come back next time 
and we will wrap up with this in looking at a couple of key illustrations in Scripture, and then we will move on to the next solution, which is regeneration, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word. We thank you for the clarity of your word in describing uh, these complex things to us, that we can understand the uh, multifaceted dimensions of your grace and the multifaceted dimensions of our so great salvation. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand these things, that they would uh, give us greater appreciation for your grace, a greater understanding of all that you have done to save us, and that they might enable us to more clearly explain the gospel uh, to those we witness to. We pray these things now in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.